nice to see you here. Whether you're inside or on the patio, welcome. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to jump into uh, our time in the Word today. Uh, if you have your program with you, inside is a green and white message note sheet. Uh, I highly suggest that today we're going to be uh, jumping through a variety of different scriptures that are in there. It might be useful to you. Uh, maybe you just want to doodle in there and that's fine too. But that's just there for you to help you follow along however that best works for you. Uh, let me pray for, uh, for all of us as we uh, jump into this time. Uh, Father, I thank you. Um, just for your, your love for us, that you, would, that you would give us your word and reveal yourself to us that way, uh, that we would have your truth written down for us. And, and I pray, Lord, that today as we dive into it, would you uh, greet us uh, through your Holy Spirit there? And would you, uh, would you peel back layers for us? Would you help us to see things perhaps that we haven't seen before or help us to take more seriously uh, realities that are a part of this world that perhaps we pretend are, are fantasy or we don't pay attention to um, would you show us what it means to be, to be your people who are living according to your word, who are, are seeking your path to life? And uh, as we do that, God, would you, uh, would you bring more life uh, into how it is that we live? In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, are continuing with our series, uh, Signs, A Path to Life, where we're jumping into the Gospel of John. And so we've been in this series uh, for quite some time. This is a, a series where uh, uh, it's all about the life and teaching of, of Jesus through the eyes of one of his closest friends, a man who we call the Apostle John, uh, who was a young man who joined Jesus' uh, group of 12 close disciples who followed Jesus around for his three years of ministry, uh, heard him teach uh, many things, saw him perform many miracles. And John is now writing uh, as an old man at the end of his life. This is after Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke are already circulating out there on the market. Uh, everyone's kind of familiar with that. And so he's writing sort of his, uh, his background, his uh, things that he thinks are important for us to know about the life of Jesus. Um, in addition to what's there in those, uh, what we call the synoptic gospels. And so here in, in John, he's laying out, one of the things he's laying out is, is seven signs that he thinks point to who Jesus is, why what he came to do is important, and what it looks like to live uh, this path to life that Jesus lays out. And so that's what this series is all, uh, has been all about. There on your note sheet, right under that quick recap, uh, is a, a section that says, Shaped. Uh, and so we've all, we've all heard the phrase, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Which, which simply means, it's usually brought up just to mean that a lot of times kids are a lot like their parents. Uh, and so I want to share a, a quick example from my own life. This is a picture of my three kids. That's uh, Samuel is our oldest. Uh, Joseph is our, our youngest. He just turned a year uh, this last week. Uh, and Lily is our, our middle. She's our, our only daughter uh, and our, the only blonde one in our whole family. Um, and so with, with our three kids, a lot of times people um, will identify Samuel as looking a lot like my wife, Silvana. Uh, and recently, a lot of people have gone out of their way to tell me that Joey looks a lot like me. Um, that giant grin on his face is something that uh, I've been caught in many pictures doing as well. Um, 
And apparently as a part of my DNA, he's been doing it since he's very small. Uh, but Lily is the one who's kind of, it's kind of a mix. Um, it's not that she doesn't fit in with the whole family when you see her with everyone, uh, but if you were to see her next to either parent, uh, especially if you didn't know uh, my wife or I, you would kind of assume that she probably looks more like the other. She's just kind of like a, a mix of everything we've got going on. Uh, she had to reach real far back in the DNA pool for that blonde hair uh, a couple generations. I don't know how, where that came from. Um, and so she's just kind of like a, a mix and different people think she kind of uh, tends different ways. Uh, but recently my wife was at a, uh, a baby shower and she brought Lily along uh, and a friend of ours commented, oh, Lily looks so much like Tim. Uh, and so Sylvana paused, she's like, what? Like, how? Tell, tell me. Like, we're always con constantly trying to look to figure out like, okay, when she's grown up, who's she really gonna look like? Uh, and our friend was like, oh, she walks just like him. Which when I was hearing this back, I was like, I have a walk? Like, I don't, was she walking to the food table? Cause that's walking like her dad. Um, like, I, I don't really know, like what exactly uh, was, does that mean? But there, there's just something that, right? This just illustrates just a small, the small truth that a lot of us are familiar with, uh, that our parents impact who we are, whether it's uh, in something in the DNA or something about watching their life and modeling after them, uh, who our parents are uh, impacts the life choices and the way that we choose to live. It's not the only influence in our life and there are all sorts of other choices that we get to make, but it's one of the things that's a, a key kind of moment for us. And for some of us, depending on who our parents are, that might be something uh, that thrills us, something that we kind of tolerate, or it might be our own mini Luke Darth Vader moment. We're like, no, I don't want to be anything like... Um, I don't want to be anything. I wish I could do that Mark Hamill impression where his face just kind of contorts, but I, I, I can't. No, I can't. Um, we, wherever it is that we land with our own parents, we recognize that there's this truth that our, our parents impact us. And so Jesus is going to tap in to this truth that who your parents are, who your father is, uh, that that has a, an outcome on who it is that you are. Jesus is continuing this dialogue with this, uh, this Jewish crowd who on some level have kind of professed some kind of belief in him or allegiance to him. Uh, and yet uh, under the surface, they're really his opponents. Uh, that they, they believe partially, but really when it comes to Jesus' mission and the truth that he's sharing, uh, they're opposed to it. They don't want anything to do with it. They like a little bit of what he says on the surface, but at the core, that's not what they're about. And Jesus is gonna challenge them by revealing their true father, their spiritual father, the one whose example and influence has shaped their opposition to Jesus. And so as we look at this dialogue and some of what Jesus uh, pulls up, there's gonna be some important stuff for us to see too, some important spiritual truths that impact our day-to-day -day life as well. And so like I said, we're in the middle of this kind of discussion that we're jumping into. Last week, we saw Jesus challenge them that, hey, if you hold to, remember Michael uh, talked about the Greek word meno, uh, if you hold to, grasp onto, if you abide in, uh, if you hold to my teaching, if you both hear it and do it, if you listen and follow, then the truth will set you free. Right, an, an amazing statement by Jesus, a statement that gets uh, shared all throughout our culture, both quoted and misquoted, uh, this idea that the truth shall set you free. And yet this amazing statement Jesus makes and, and their response isn't to be like, oh, that's really good, that's really deep, I really like that, show, show me this truth. Instead, their response is to say, we're, we're not slaves. Whoa, we're not, we're not slaves, we're children of Abraham. Right, and Jesus is like, you are slaves, you're, you're slaves 
to sin. And so we saw that last week, and now we're going to kind of continue this conversation he's having with them. We're going to start in John chapter 8. If you have your Bible, we're going to be opening up. Or if you've got your phone, you've got the Bible app on there. Or if you want to Google it, or if you want to lean over on the person next to you, we're going to be looking in John chapter 8, starting in verse 37, which is where we ended last week, just kind of continue on with this flow of thought through this dialogue that he's having with this kind of combative crowd. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you're doing what you've heard from your father. He says, look, I know that you're Abraham's biological kids, but you're trying to kill me. That's not at all what Abraham would be trying to do. In fact, you have no room for my word. In your, in your head and in your heart, you're so full of yourself and the way that you think things should work that you can't receive the truth that I've been sent here to share with you. He says, but I've come teaching what my father has shown me, but you're demonstrating a different heritage. And we have to remember, this is a conversation uh, between Jesus and these people. They're, they're all Jewish. They have the same, uh, the same DNA background. All of them could trace their DNA back to Abraham. And so Jesus uh, is using this to say, hey, hey I know we, have, we share this uh, biological background, but there's something different, more important on a spiritual level that's going on. He's, he's kind of forcing them to see that there's, there's something that stands behind his word and this truth that he's been, uh, he's been bringing to them, this freedom-granting truth that's grounded in something greater than just their shared history. And that he's also forcing them to reconcile with the reality that, that their actions betray a, a deeply troubling and suspect source for their spiritual lineage. He's saying, hey, just because we share the same family background doesn't mean we're coming from, this at the, from the same place. doesn't mean that we have the same values. It doesn't mean that we're exercising things uh, out in the same way as we're having this discussion. And Jesus continues, or sorry, the crowd responds in verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father, they answer. If you, and he says, if you were Abraham's children said, Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such things. He said, if you're actually Abraham's kids in a way that mattered, you would live like it. Jesus says, you're not living like Abraham. You're trying to kill me. We know from Genesis that Abraham was someone, and in Genesis 26, it talks about how he's someone who obeyed God and he loved God's word. Right? Even the word in the Hebrew in that passage, one of the words there is God's Torah, which a lot of times we'll think of as his law or the first five books of the Old Testament are sometimes called the Torah. But before those five books were written, I mean, Abraham's in the middle of the first book. And before the law was handed down to Moses, like hundreds of years later, before all of that happened, Abraham was someone who was committed to God's word, to his Torah, to his wisdom and his wise decrees on how it is that he should live. Abraham was someone who heard God's truth and obeyed his word. And this crowd, their response to God's truth is to look for a way to get rid of Jesus. Have you ever had a bad response to the truth, right? Maybe, maybe it's a, a kid in your family, 
right? Whether your child or someone else's child comes up to you, sometimes kids can be brutally honest. And they just say, I remember one time having a middle school student tell me uh, that my hair looked like newscaster hair. Um, <laughs> and the worst part was when I looked in the mirror, I was like, he's right. And I had to change that. Uh, and then I haven't changed my hair really since then. And so I probably need another update. Uh, but that, that was brutal. And it cut, it cut to the core because I was like, I don't want to recognize this, but it's true. Uh, maybe it's been a boss who gave you a review at work, right? And you're like, oh, I hate how accurate this is. And your impulse, what you want to go do is, is talk about that boss behind their back because you're not super thrilled with it. But very few of us have probably heard such a painful, such a difficult truth that our response was then to want to murder the person who was sharing that truth with us. That's where this crowd is coming from. They're hearing Jesus share this truth and they want to put him to death because of it. Uh, verse 41, you're doing the works of your own father. Crowd responds, whoa, we're, we're not illegitimate children. Right? And this might be them kind of throwing in Jesus' face the circumstances of his birth that Mary wasn't yet uh, married to Joseph when Jesus was born. And so they might be kind of, uh, it might be a callback to uh, where Jesus, kind of his family background came from. Uh, but regardless, Jesus is saying, hey, you're doing the works of your father, not Abraham. And they're like, whoa, Jesus, look, we're not illegitimate. We're actual children of Abraham. We're not like the Samaritans. We're not like the pagans. We're not like the Romans. We're children of, a we're not illegitimate children. What are you talking about? And then they say, the only father we have is God himself. Probably referencing a moment in Exodus where God says that he's, he's brought Israel in as his firstborn son, where God is saying, hey, I'm bringing the people of Israel under my protection. And so these, these Jewish uh, people in the crowd are claiming, you know what, no, God, God is our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. And so here, right, the crowd is claiming God is our father. We know Jesus has claimed that God is his father. And so uh, implicitly, John, the author, is asking us, hey, look at these two groups of people. They're both claiming God is their father. Which one has a, a better case to be made? If you were to look at the way that they live, which one actually looks like their father, the one who's impacted their life, is God? Is it the crowd who wants to put Jesus to death? or Jesus who comes bearing a message of love from the Father. Right, there's this important truth here that spiritual sonship is shown by character and conduct. Right, specifically here, Jesus is saying, hey, if you were God's kids, you would love me because of the truth that I'm coming to share. And instead, you wanna put me to death because of it. Verse 43, Jesus is continuing, why is my language not clear to you? because you're unable to hear what I say. The context behind that, that word for hear is also to obey. He's saying you don't have the capacity to obey, so you don't even understand what I'm saying. Even if you could understand the things that I'm teaching, you wouldn't choose to follow. And then here comes the great reveal. What does Jesus say about who their father is, right? Is he 
like Paul later? Is he going to point to uh, Adam as the, the father, the fallen kind of picture of the, uh, the human race? Is he going to uh, point to some, is he just going to point to some other uh, figure in the Old Testament uh, who's a, a fallen person? Is he just going to point to a political enemy like Caesar or one of these other people who would represent kind of this, this pagan group of people? No, Jesus takes it much further than any of those human examples. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. But there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. And so if when you hear Jesus talk about the devil, your first thought is to think of some mythical character or you think of uh, some red guy with horns and a pitchfork who's ruling over some fiery hellscape, put that on pause. We're gonna touch on that a little bit later in today's message of what does the Bible actually say about this person that Jesus is pointing to? But Jesus says, hey, look at the choices that you're making. Look at your response to this truth that I'm coming to share. Your father is the devil, in Greek, diabolos, the, the slanderer, who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He says, you're, you're lying about your own righteousness. You're gonna be willing to lie about me. As we know, in six months, they're gonna put Jesus on a false trial. They're gonna make up charges against him and they're gonna put him to death. They want to murder just as their father, the devil, does. He says, that's who you're living like. He hates the truth, and so do you. He's your spiritual father. Verse 46, so Jesus has just made this amazing accusation against them, this weighty accusation, and so then he's gonna, he's gonna kind of support him, his own self. And so instead of just saying, uh, hey, you guys are slaves to sin, your father is the devil, my father is God, I'm perfect. Jesus doesn't just claim to be perfect. Instead, Jesus in verse 46 says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm telling you the truth. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Can you prove me guilty of sin? How many of us in this room would be comfortable coming up here and like standing in front of everyone here and being like, prove me guilty of sin? It would not be a fun, but it would be a fast game. <laughs> Even for me, like you just look back over the last few hours, like since I've been awake, I'm sure you can find plenty to show that I am, I'm imperfect. None of us here are perfect people. And to prove that would not be too difficult. And yet Jesus gets up in front of these people who know him and he's able to say, not just, hey, I'm sinless. He's able to say, hey, can you prove me guilty of any sin? Verse 47, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. So this group of people who kind of claim to like Jesus, his response is to say, hey, look, if you belonged to God, you would hear what he says. If you're a part of the family of God, then Jesus' teaching makes sense. So there are three kind of important things that I want to highlight for us coming out of this passage of what Jesus teaches. Three ways uh, that this passage can matter to us today, has day-to-day -day impact on how it is that we live. And so uh, 
in your note sheet, kind of on the inside there, there's a section, signs, just like your father. And so I want to highlight this first truth. Now, it might sound basic, but it's an important, for, uh, important one for us as we kind of interact with Jesus' teaching here. And it's this, that the, the devil is real. The devil is real. If you've been coming to Rocky Peak for a long time or have been involved in church for a long time or maybe have even been raised in the church, uh, this is something that many of us in this room that we would believe, that we would, that we would think is true, but most of the time we live as if the enemy is a fairy tale. We live as if the devil is really just this, this fairy tale, mythical figure. Like the the Greek gods and the Roman gods and the devil and all of those old stories of these spiritual beings. And we're, we're willing to interface with Jesus on a regular basis and talk to him. But the idea of this other kind of spiritual presence is something we don't pay a lot of attention to. And a part of that there is that in our culture, there's kind of this mishmash of different things going on. We have this, uh, this kind of echo, this impression of biblical truth from the last couple thousands of years of the, the Bible being this important piece of our, of our Western culture and this part of our, our kind of heritage and understanding of the world where for a long, long time, people have, have dealt with this idea of this, this Satan or this devil kind of as a, a character, but then you... You take on all the different ways that people have represented that in and out of art and culture and pop culture and whatever it is. And so whether it's Dante's Inferno or a Bugs Bunny cartoon or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, we ha all have these different images of, of this devil or demonic characters and what they might be like. And so when we, we come to a passage in the Bible that talks about there being this enemy, one of the first things that we think of are, are kind of these uh, these artistic imaginations that are easy to kind of push off as, as not that real or not that accurate. And so what I want to do quickly today is do a, a quick summary of kind of the, the Bible's teaching on the enemy. This isn't exhaustive and it's not everything, but under this section, you'll see in your notes that there are a few verses printed out that we're going to read together. And there are also a bunch of other ones that are kind of uh, noted underneath this point that are there for you to kind of check back up on some of the work that I've done, make sure that I'm not just, you know, feeding you a whole bunch of things that I've just made up. Uh, it's important for us to understand what the Bible actually has to say about who the devil is. And so I want to kind of jump in and go through this quick survey to see who, who is this enemy that Jesus is saying, no, the, the devil is your father. And so like we talked about, the word that Jesus uses uh, in the Greek there uh, is the word diabolos, uh, which, is, which would be like the, the slanderer. In the Hebrew, when it talks about uh, Satan, it's the, the Hebrew hasatan, the, the accuser or the adversary. Uh, all throughout the Bible, we don't get an actual proper name for this character, although it is clear that it is a, there is a, an individual that is there who's behind some of these things. Um, we don't get a proper name. We get these descriptive names. Someone who stands against, who's an, an adversary, who's a slanderer. And so we see, we see this character pop up almost right away in the story in the third chapter of Genesis. 
God's created this amazing creation and he's put Adam and Eve as the, the first ancestors of humanity to represent him as his image bearers, uh, to show off God's rule and his, his character to all of creation. Uh, and God gives them, he gives them this entire garden to oversee and says, hey, you can eat from any of these trees except for this one. If you eat from that tree, you're gonna die. And then here comes, uh, here comes Satan, here comes the serpent as he's listed in this passage, as he's called in this passage. And it says that, that he was craftier than any of the other wild animals. And so he comes in and he starts kind of feeding these lies to Adam and Eve to convince them to distrust God. And so right away, we see a few things about him. We see that he's a part of creation. He comes in in the story as a part of creation, not standing outside of creation, not separate from it. He's created, he's a creature. And yet he's also crafty. He, he may be evil, but he's not dumb. Right? He's described as, as craftier, as smart, as, as conniving, as having a plan to what it is that he's doing. And he shows up looking to bring destruction and chaos into God's created order. He's a liar who brings with him death, but he's also subject to God, right? In that same chapter in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they choose to distrust God and they fall away and God uh, brings judgment on to both Adam and to Eve, but also God brings judgment onto the serpent in that moment. And so we see there that even right from the beginning, there's not two warring powers of equal strength. There's not two gods who are at war. There's not a creator God and a destructive God. There's not great good and great evil at equal, at equal levels and hopefully good wins out in the end. Instead, we see that always constantly the creator has power and supremacy over even this enemy. Uh, we get a glimpse a little bit later in the story into Satan's backstory in Isaiah 14. As the prophet in this moment is proclaiming God's judgment over an evil oppressor of Israel, we also get this, this window into some backstory of the evil that stands behind uh, this human oppressor, that there's this spiritual oppressor, this spiritual evil at play as well. In Isaiah 14, uh, starting in verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Now, a lot of times in the ancient Near East, when they would talk about spiritual beings, what you and I would call angels, they would use star language to talk about uh, these beings. And so they would talk about stars in the sky or here, morning star uh, or son of the dawn. It's talking about this great, this glorious uh, angelic being that's been given this glory from God who's created uh, who was kind of at the pinnacle. Now, the old Latin for where it says morning star uh, in, in English would be Lucifer. And so once again, even that name that we have kind of culturally for the devil, um, I believe there's a popular show on like Fox or something with that title. Um, right, that, that name, uh, that also is, is descriptive. It's not a proper name. Uh, it's a descriptive of the, the glory that this, this person, this angelic person once had. It says, how you've fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars, above the angels of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. And so 
where God gathers the angels to rule over all of creation, this angelic being was like, you know what? That's where I'm gonna put my throne. Where God rules is where, where I will rule from. Verse 14, I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. And so he, he has this created glory, created to serve God like the rest of creation and yet wants to put himself above the most high. He wants to be God of the universe. Verse 15, but you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So the devil is this created spiritual being that desired to take God's place and yet lost. He wanted to rule and yet he was revoked and he didn't get ultimately what he wanted. Revelation chapter 12 gives us another kind of window into this. The, the great dragon, another kind of picture for this enemy. The great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent, right, a call back to Genesis 3, called the devil or Satan, the slanderer, the accuser, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so in his rebellion, he takes along with him some of these other spirit beings they're not even close to a match for God. They're all, they're all sentenced. They're all in rebellion. But here we get a window into now what it is that he wants to do, right? He, he at one time wanted to supplant God and was unsuccessful in that. And so now his goal is to lead the whole world astray, to bring chaos into God's creation, to bring evil where there was good, and to pull you and I, God's image bearers, away from God in whatever way that he can to keep human beings away from the God of love and truth. So he's failed to take over and now he wants to ruin whatever he can. Uh, John, the same John who writes this gospel, writes in 1 John 5 uh, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He says that, that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one, meaning that wherever we look, when we see evil, we know that standing behind that is the influence of this enemy and his angelic host who are all committed to this idea of ruining God's good plan. That evil is at work because there's an enemy who's at work. And that we as human beings, because our human race has fallen, because Adam and Eve were tempted, and because each of us give into that temptation as well, we are born not into God's family and God's kingdom, but we are born into the kingdom of darkness. That naturally each of us starts with at some level the, the devil as our father, as our ruler, as the one who we are under the control of. And Jesus came on a rescue plan to set us free and bring us into the kingdom of God. That's why Paul will say that our enemy is not flesh and blood. That if they breathe and if they bleed, they're people that Jesus came to rescue. That instead that our enemy is the one who stands behind the evil that has consumed so many. But the good news is that that enemy's plans are being foiled. In Luke 11, which is also kind of noted on your note sheet there, Jesus describes the devil as a, a strong man who's fully armored, who guards his own house and whose possessions he keeps safe. His possessions, meaning you and I, humanity. And then Jesus says that, there, that when someone stronger attacks, 
When Jesus comes and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus has come to divide the plunder of the devil. And he's proved his power over evil by his death and resurrection. He's taken away the armor, the sin that kept us in bondage. He has broken that. And he is plundering the kingdom of the enemy, ripping people away from his grasp. And so here in our quick kind of survey, here's kind of what we see about the devil, that he's one of many created angelic beings subject to the creator God. He's a liar, a murderer, an adversary to God's plan. He desired to take God's place and he failed. And he's dedicated to leading people astray. And Jesus has bound him and is plundering his possessions by the power of the cross. But Jesus' victory doesn't mean that we can pretend that the devil is a fairy tale or of little or no consequence. There in your note sheet, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, warns us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says, your enemy, the devil, right? When we come under Jesus' leadership and we become a part of his kingdom, now this devil who was once our father becomes our enemy as well, and he is looking to devour like a roaring lion. If he gets a chance, he and his forces would love to lead you astray, to take you and I as far as possible from, from God's plan for our life. And that might mean convincing those of us who are, are curious about Jesus and interested in checking out what he has to say, instead convincing us that something else is worth living for. But it might be for those of us who have given Jesus our life, coming in and convincing us that something else is worth giving our full time and attention to, that something else uh, is worth being distracted by, or that there is something in our life that we want to hold back that Jesus asks us to submit and surrender and the enemy just comes in in any way that he can convince us not to do that, that's what he is there for. And so we need to be alert and aware because he and his forces are actively trying to distract us at every turn to pull us away, to lead us astray, away from Jesus' plan for our life. And so if we want to be alert, we need to know kind of what his pattern of behavior is. How is it that he does this in our life? What's the, the most common way that he does it? And so that leads us to our second point, that the devil lies. The devil lies. Look what Jesus said about the devil in John 8, verse 44. He says, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. The devil loves to lie. His favorite tool is twisting the truth and he's been doing it from the very beginning. We see that in Genesis 3 as he's talking uh, with Eve at the tree. Um, so it says the, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? That's not what God said at all. He's twisting what God said. He's like, oh, does God really care? Does God, does, God want, does God want you to starve? Why does God want to hold back what's good from you? Eve kind of 
supports it a little. She's like, no, no, God said just this one tree. We can't eat or touch it or we'll die. Verse four, you'll certainly not die. You're not gonna die. And on some level, right, the moment Adam and Eve eat from that fruit, they don't drop dead in that moment. They experience a level of death. They experience spiritual death. Death comes into the creation. And yet, He's not completely wrong. They're not going to, their heart won't stop in that moment. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Remember the temptation he had in Isaiah 14 to be like the most high. He now offers that to them. He, know how, he knows how that ended for him and he wants that to end the same way for them. It says, when you eat it, you'll be like God. He, he twists the truth. He changes it. Adam and Eve, they now experience evil, right? They know evil after they mistrust God. And so it wasn't a complete lie that they would be like God in knowing good and evil, but it was certainly very twisted from the truth. And he does the same thing for us too. He takes these areas and he, he convinces us and twists the truth on us. Think back to some of the things in your life that have maybe been long-standing struggles before the Lord, things that you know that you've tried for a long time to submit before the Lord. I mean, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an area of, of lust in your life, right? And for a long time, you've known what God calls us to and how he's created uh, people to be in his image and not as, as things to just be uh, used uh, for our own pleasure, not as as items to be used, but as people to be valued. And yet still, you constantly find yourself in this cycle uh, of falling into patterns of lust and you're having trouble kind of breaking through that. I think for, for many of us, the problem uh, as we struggle in areas in our life isn't at the level of seeing what we're doing as right or wrong. It's that we've been, become convinced that this is the solution to a problem in our life. As I've walked with many uh, young men through the, my years in ministry, what I've noticed is that while lust is a really common struggle, that for many of them, uh, there's something else kind of going on under the surface. And oftentimes it's something radically different. For some, uh, they feel like they have a lack of control in their life and giving into this area in their life offers them some modicum of con uh, control. For some of them, they're, they're deeply lonely. And now this is uh, like a, a momentary uh, salve to that loneliness. And so maybe the answer for them isn't to know that, that lust is wrong, but that God wants to be in control of things in their life that they can't, or that, that there is uh, a connection they can have with him, even in their deepest moments of loneliness that doesn't need to be met in this area of sin. Maybe for some of us, we've fallen into the trap of, of keeping up with those around us and we've, we've fallen into the lie that, that stuff and possessions can give our life some sort of sense of, of security. And we look at our life and we look at the, the chaos in the world around us and we become convinced that it's through having our finances in order and having all the stuff and having the right job that we're gonna be kept safe. And the, the enemy has fed us this lie that we can be in enough control or that we can have enough safety simply by piling up a mountain of stuff, right? When, when truly the truth is that, that God wants to be that safety for us, that only he is in control of everything and that even the things that we pile up in our storehouses and that can all burn up in an instant 
and be lost and that our only security can be found in him. Maybe it's just that focusing of of ourself on our own sin, that hyper-focus of our sin, the enemy coming along and kind of twisting your arm and saying, man, you're, you're so broken. You're so terrible. Look at the things that you keep doing. Look at the, the sin that is just constant in your life. Look how, how much you don't measure up. How could God ever love you? God could never love you. And the amazing thing is he is so talented at taking something that is true and twisting it because it is true. We are sinful, broken people whose sinfulness is probably worse than any of us recognize. And so he'll, he'll take that truth and he'll run with it and he'll twist it just at the end there. And where he wants to convince us that God could never love us, right, the truth of God's word comes in and says, no, God's forgiveness and what he's done on the cross that overpowers anything that we've done, no matter how evil and how awful it seems to us, the cross is always better. But if the enemy can convince you to forget about that for a moment and to wallow in your own awfulness, he's distracted you. He, he doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our allegiance. He doesn't need us bowing down to him or even recognizing him. He needs simply to feed us 95% of the truth and 5% of the lie to keep us astray, to pull us away from God's truth and plan in our life. And so how do we combat his lies? In James 4, verse 7, it says to us, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So what it doesn't say is, hey, in your own power, resist the devil. It says, submit to God and resist the devil. That is when we trust in God's truth, when we choose to live his way, that it's in that that we find what we need in order to hold fast and resist the devil. Because something real is at stake. Not just our eternal salvation, but also the quality of our life here with God today. We need God's truth in our life. Because there's a danger that we could end up like this crowd, like Jesus' opponents in this passage who, who think that they want to follow him. They think that they're fans of Jesus and yet actually they're slaves to sin and their father is the devil. How do you know that your father is God and not the devil? Our last villain is this, that your actions reveal your allegiance. Your, it's your actions that reveal your allegiance. The crowd is wrapped up in, their, in their, the security of their physical ancestry, their history. And yet Jesus is driving them to the truth that it's their spiritual father that really matters. And for us, it can be easy to associate our spiritual safety or our identity uh, with certain human figures or human patterns of behavior uh, or this, this past that we have. We can be like, oh, you know what? My, my family is a Christian family. I was, I was born a Christian. My grandparents are Christian. My parents are Christian. Uh, I, that's just who I am. That's, that's a part of, that's just the family I was born into or that's the culture that I'm a part of or, or I follow the teachings of Luther or Calvin or MacArthur or Yearly. Uh, like I, I'm, there's this person that I follow and I'm, I'm their follower. So therefore I, I'm safe because I claim this name 
We link our Christianity to certain cultural markers, right? I prayed the prayer when I was 12 or, or 10 years ago when I was in college, I was on fire. I was, I was working for that nonprofit or I was, I was plugged into crew or InterVarsity and man, things were awesome 10 years ago. I've still got the Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, tattoo. It's around a butterfly, it's fine. Um, it's, I've still got these things in my life that ring true to this old past where I was, I was passionate about God. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, things recently haven't been like, I don't, I don't know about recently. It's been, a, it's been a crazy year. But no, no, I, my, my family, my heritage, my past, my old decisions, the things that have marked me from before. Right? We can't, in the same way that this crowd shouldn't have rested on Abraham and what he did, we can't rest on our, either our heritage or our old passion. Here, Jesus reminds us that it's our actions that reveal, that show our allegiance, our, our faithfulness that reveals our family, our character that reveals our king. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus and his work on the cross in bringing uh, forgiveness and salvation to us. We're not saved by works, but if the works don't match our words, then perhaps our words don't match our heart. That how you live says a lot about who you trust. And so there are just kind of two questions that I, I think are important for all of us to kind of chew on, coming out of the truth of this passage, coming out of what Jesus has taught here and how he's challenged this crowd. I think two things that should challenge us. And the first one is is this, what is your source of truth? What is your source, your, your final authority, the place that you draw your truth from? In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If our source of truth, if our final and ultimate authority isn't Jesus, then we are vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. If Jesus is not the one that we build our ultimate sense of how the world works, what's most important, what's right, what's wrong, if it's not built from God's word, then we are vulnerable to the one who would give everything to lead us astray. Whether it's for a week, a month, or years, he would love to feed us the lies, to distract us from God's purpose in our life. Our source of truth can't be cable news or a political party or a talking head or a pastor or a celebrity or a celebrity pastor or mainstream media or countercultural media or talk radio or the guy that you talk to at work. None of those things can be our ultimate source of truth. Just because someone agrees with Jesus in one area doesn't mean that we can trust everything else that they say to also be in agreement with him unless we take that back to the source of truth unless we take it back to God's word to understand what it is that he says, right, that needs to be our final authority. The rest of those things can be entertaining or helpful or informational or hurtful, but none of them are the ultimate source of real truth. It's God's word that he says he'll use in our life to transform us. In John 17, towards the end of the Gospel of John, we'll get there probably in time for the next Summer Olympics in 2024. Um, 
John 17, 17, he says, Jesus is praying for his followers, for us. He's asking the Father, he's saying, Father, would you sanctify them, right? Would you grow them? Would you help them to be holy like us? Would you make them into saints to reflect your character? Would you sanctify them by the truth? Your word is truth. It's by the power of God's truth in our life that we become the people that he has created us to be. That's not by sheer force of will, it's not by being around the right people. It's not by being a part of the right family. It's about the power of God's truth worked out in our life by the Holy Spirit to form us into who he's calling us to be, to chip away the things that need to be chipped away, to combat the lies of the enemy, and to bring out truth and character that reflects our Lord and Savior. And so how are you getting into the word? Or maybe better yet, how are you getting more word into your life? There are so many valuable ways that we can be digging into the Bible more. And I think a lot of times when we hear someone standing where I am talk about being in the, the Bible, it can sometimes feel like this great uh, weight of guilt that comes over us for not reading enough. I know I grew up uh, in a tradition that I just kind of felt like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not doing it right if I'm not reading the Bible every day. And most of the time, I wasn't reading the Bible every day, so I felt like I wasn't doing it right. Um, and I felt like that's, you know, that's the expectation. It wasn't until much later, I think I was in seminary, one of my professors was like, hey, uh, Psalm 1, uh, it talks about the, the man who, who, does, who does what? Who, oh, who, who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, that he's blessed. And he challenged us in this class, like, hey, the, the word meditate there, it doesn't mean read. It means, like, thinks about, works, works around in their mind, chews on, considers, imagines. Right? The, the goal isn't that we be just scholars of the Bible. The goal is that we would be people who are students of Jesus, who are, are taking in what the Bible says and really, truly living it out. I think... One of the greatest tools that we have now that's available for free is that through the Bible app, you can listen to the Bible read to you. Uh, we're blessed to be in a culture where most of us are able to read, but for most of the history of the church, almost everyone wasn't literate. They weren't able to read. The way that they interacted with God's word was by hearing it read by someone else for them. And I think for, for many of us, because the Bible was kind of written with that in mind, written to be read long form to people, uh, there are ways that we can interact with God's word that we kind of take for granted. Um, the reality is most of us in this room probably aren't readers all the time. Some of us are readers, and if you are, go for it, dig into it, meet God the way that he's designed you to meet him. But if you're someone who struggles with reading, and in the past you felt like listening to the Bible was sort of taking a shortcut, like that, that's a part of a long-standing Christian tradition. And so I want to encourage you that, that listening to the Bible can be a great way to get more word and more of God's truth into your daily rhythm uh, if reading is something that you find frustrating or unfruitful. But regardless of how it is that we're digging into the truth of God, if we can be digging into that more, if we can be getting more of his word into our life and working it out more, right? Considering how does this really look like lived out in my life, that's what gives us the tools to fight the lies of the enemy is knowing what God's truth is and even considering for ourselves, okay, in this area of struggle that I have, where have I fallen prey to a lie? What's the lie that I believe? Not just why don't I have enough 
strength of character or why am I not strong enough? Why don't I have self-discipline enough? And those are good things too. But what's the lie that I believed? And then allowing God's truth to minister to that lie. Whatever it is, the area that we've believed that there's something about this sin that gives me more life than the life Jesus has promised me. And so the key is that we be people who go back to the source of truth in God's word. And then the second question is this, and this is more so for our, our own personal reflection, I think, in our life is, is just who, who is your father? Not who would you say is your father? Also not who's on your birth certificate. Uh, who, in the same way that Jesus challenges this crowd, this crowd claimed Abraham and God as their father and they were wrong on both accounts. What would your actions say about you from the outside? The way that, that our friend saw Lily from across the room and was like, oh, that's Tim's kid. She walks like him. Uh, if people saw your life, if they saw your walk, would they say that you walk like your father? Would they say you look like him? Does your character reflect him? Do your interactions with people reflect him? The Bible says that he is, he is faithful, that he is true. Are, are we people who are faithful and true? In John 1, we're reminded that we're not all born as children of God. It says, yet to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By giving our life over to Jesus and accepting him as our Lord, our King, and our Savior, we now have the right to become children of God. And so I, I leave you with this, this verse that I, it's gonna be challenging, I think, to me this week from Ephesians 5, where it says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Father, I, I pray that as your people, that we, would, that we would be your kids, that we would look to you with eyes that want to follow you, to emulate you, to live life the way that you would have us live it, to be reflectors of what's most important to you. You are a God who is full of love and grace, who is committed to truth, who cares about justice, who's come and graciously given us all of yourself, through your son, and I pray that, that we would be people who reflect even just a piece of that. Father, would you, by your truth and your word, would you sanctify, would you grow us into the people that you've created us to be? In Jesus' name, amen.